welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome to this special episode of First Incision, where we are lucky enough to have the amazing Dr. Jocelyn Lippi on the program so we can ask her a few questions about breast surgery. In our team timeout for today, our patient is the breast surgery module from the general surgical curriculum. And the operational topics we're going to be covering today are mostly related to breast cancer. I've tried to get her to answer the questions and things we weren't really clear on during the content episodes of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we enjoyed recording it. Let's start this episode off by asking Jocelyn to tell us a little bit about herself. So my name's Jocelyn Lippi. I'm a breast surgeon uh, based in Melbourne. I work at the Northern and St Vincent's Hospital. I'm also doing a PhD uh, through the University of Melbourne that's funded by the NBCF looking at tailored breast screening or individualised breast screening. How do we communicate that to women? Because, you know, if we're doing breast screening the way that we've been doing it for 30 years in Australia, it's probably better to it's probably time to start thinking how we can do that a bit better. Um, I've got two kids and a husband, a cat and three chickens. And uh, the kids are always pushing me for another pet, but I think the number of humans can't be um, less than the number of pets. So this podcast is about preparing for the General Surgical Fellowship exam. What advice or tips can you give us about preparing for the General Surgical Fellowship exam? Uh, so my general exam tips, um, the thing I love to say the most is that it's not an exam about knowledge and you have to keep that in the forefront of your mind when you're studying for it because I'm not saying that there's not a lot to learn because there is a ridiculous amount to learn. In fact, there's probably an infinite amount to learn. Like It's probably not possible for a single normal human being to learn that volume. But what you fail on isn't knowledge for most people. It's about the way that you express that knowledge. And talking in a sort of professional sense like that, even though we do it every day in our clinical lives, when you're giving an exam answer is quite different. And so that just needs practice. So you just have to practice and practice and practice and practice. And whatever method you do for talking practice, that's what you need to do. So that's why small group tutes are really good. If you have too many people in the tute, you're not able to talk enough. And if you don't have enough people in your tute group, then you're not listening to other people because you learn so much um, about ways to talk from listening to how other people express things. You know, so often you'll hear someone, you're like, oh, I really like the way that they said that phrase. You know, you sort of steal that bit of catchphrase. Um, my example for that is mindful. I can't remember when I heard it, but I early on in my studying, I heard somebody when they were doing an operative description say, uh, and at this point of the surgery, I'm mindful of blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I like that. Uh, and it's actually something that I've kept, so I use that word a lot um, when describing operative stuff. The thing I did the most to practice talking um, is I recorded myself on voice memos in the car. I had quite a long commute to work and back. And so I would record myself talking through whatever, like you know, do a small bowel anastomosis. Um, and I'd 
describe a small bowel anastomosis and then I'd stop the recording and listen to myself and it's so painful. And like probably the most painful thing that you can do is listen to yourself talking. But um, it was really valuable because all those little um, ums and ahs and nuances and ways that you say things that you probably aren't even aware of, you, you can't be aware of them if you're not listening. So you have to listen to yourself talking and accept the fact that it will hurt. Um, my other big exam tip is when you're answering a question, don't jump straight into the money answer. Try and think about, sort of take a step back and go, okay, well, what's the bigger issue here? And give a reflective statement about what the bigger issue is first. Especially if it's a really complicated issue, it's reasonable to start that answer with, this is a complex clinical scenario with no clear-cut correct path you know, something overarching rather than start digging yourself into a hole because you can see people dig themselves into a hole. Um, in terms of the volume of knowledge that you need to learn, try not to get bogged down in that. Try not to get into a little niche too much, except the fact that there's a lot and that you're never going to be able to learn every single tiny little thing. Um, make sure that you've got a timetable early on to make sure that you cover all the areas of the curriculum and if you haven't if you're not up to date with your timetable just move on because otherwise you'll get bogged down um, in terms of trying to cover a large amount of content flashcards are really really good for that so I used an app called mental case and I wrote the flashcards on my desktop but then you could transfer it to your iPad or to your phone and then if you were in a really boring meeting for five minutes you know, and you had five minutes in a boring meeting, you could flip through and give yourself some questions. We divided it in my study group, so there were four of us in our study group, and we all had dedicated dedicated topics to write flashcards on. Um, and so now I have like 6,000 flashcards. The problem is that different people think about things differently, and so there's a couple of people in my <clears throat> study group that I hope don't hear this, who I found their flashcards basically useless. Um, so you know, you've got to kind of make the flashcards meaningful for you. Um, flashcards are a really good um, from a, um, uh, like, education perspective. They're a really good way to help us learn because it's question and answer. Um, and so then the last thing I want to say about exam technique in general is that think about it, approach it as what do I need to know to be a safe country surgeon? So often when I'm giving breast tutorials, people ask me really complicated breast niche questions. And I think I'm happy to talk to you about this, but the chances are if this topic comes up in your exam, you've passed. You know, that the really complex stuff should be subspecialty um, and have an understanding that there's not always one correct answer. With the study timetable you were talking about, I've sort of spread my study out and it's over a year to cover the whole curriculum. It's massive. And I worry about trying to cover things at the start and then not covering them again till the end and how I'm going to remember anything. Do you have any particular approaches for that? Yeah, I think a year is probably too long. So if you're going to do it over a year, you'll then need to re-revise it at some point. Um, I think we did it over seven or eight months. And I wrote the timetable for my whole study group. Um, and, yeah, we did seven or eight months and then you had, I just had one month for each, you know, like one month for GI, one month for trauma, one month for breast. 
you know, divided it that way. Um, and then when you were doing shoots, um, we'd often do spots and spots will cover a broad range of stuff. So stuff will come up from a couple of months ago uh, if you do it like that. But if you're going to do it over a year, you need to make sure that you're re-revising it. But, yeah, it's tempting to want to spread it over a longer time. <laughs> yeah, but that's even like um, f- four weeks a module or something because there's all the, you know, vascular and urology and all those sorts of things. I don't know how much. And I think a lot will overlap and probably as I go along, we won't need as long, but you know, it feels like it takes a long time to do a topic at the moment. No, it does. Even, you know, when you're closer, it will still take a long time to cover a topic. And and that's when I think you have to try and remember to just stick to the to the big picture stuff because, yeah, it's so easy to get, you know, I don't know if you find yourself chasing down a rabbit hole. You know, oh, that's really interesting. I want to look that up and then, you know, yeah, you find yourself... I spent hours looking at genetics of colorectal polyps yesterday and I thought, what am I doing? Yeah, yeah it's really easy to do because, you know, one question leads to another question and then, yeah. Um, and that's good and now you'll know that. That can be your thing. That can be my thing, my niche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to some more specific questions I had around the topic of breast cancer, I wanted to start with some questions about the axilla. This seems to come up a lot in the exam. My first question is pretty general, which is how many nodes should you remove at a sentinel lymph node biopsy? Um, So that is a good question. And I think whenever you're answering questions, like if you're preparing exam answer questions, it's always good to give an overarching sort of rather than launching straight into where the money is to give an overarching concept of of why we do that test right so why do we do a sentinel lymph node biopsy um so it's a test it's a staging test and it gives you information about prognosis and guides further treatment that's a good way to answer that question. You know, this is why I'm doing it. And then why do I care about the number? Well, I care about the number of lymph nodes that I receive because I want the, the best amount of prognostic information, but I want to minimise harm. So if I take too many, I increase the risk of somebody developing lymphedema, seroma, neuropathic pain, frozen shoulder, the complications of axillary dissection. But if I don't take enough, then my risk of a false negative is too high. So I think the sweet spot is somewhere between two and four. You certainly don't want to be taking six. Um, but the difficulty is that you don't have a lot of control over how many you take, right? Like it, p- people's anatomy determines that. So sometimes there is only one lymph node that's hot or blue and you know that you want to take more than one so that you don't get a false negative. But you also don't want to be just randomly removing lymph nodes because that's not the idea um so yes that's a very long-winded way of saying two to four (laughs) (laughs) the next one is what to do when you find lymph node metastases on the sentinel lymph node biopsy it seems pretty clear that if there's no metastases and or only isolated tumor cells that that node's considered negative and you don't need to do any further axillary surgery but what do you do if you come across micrometastases or macrometastases and if there's one or two or three lymph nodes involved, what's the difference? Okay. So 
So I'm just going to put it back to you for a second. So tell me the definition between isolated tumour cells, micromet, and a macrometastasis, and how do they identify those? Isolated tumour cells is less than 0.2 millimetre cluster of tumour cells or less than 200 cells, and they may see those with just microscopy or they can do immunohistochemistry, I think, to identify those. If micrometastases is 0.2 to 2 millimetre cluster of cells, and macrometastases is more than two millimetres. So when you think of it like that, you've got to think of it relates to the volume of metastatic disease in the lymph node, and, and they're almost arbitrary cutoffs. you know, why they chose point, point 0.2 and why they chose two. I mean, they just have to draw a line in the sand somewhere. somewhere. And I think to be mindful of is that, like you said, it depends on the method of analysis that they're doing as to what you'll detect. So because some people... Not so much in Australia. In Australia, it's pretty routine to do immunohistochemistry, but um, overseas, some in some institutions, they'll just do an H and E stain, and so then you'll really only pick up a macromet anyway. So it goes back to what I was saying before about. The, so the answer to the question is about why are you doing the test, right? Why are you doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy? And uh, as I said before, you're doing it for staging and prognosis and to guide further treatment. So if you've got a micro, if you've got an isotrim, so that's pretty easy to put that into the basket of, okay, we're going to call that n naught disease. That actually doesn't require any further testing. It's a different story if you've got a couple of lymph nodes, one with a macrometastasis and one with an isolated tumour cell. It's a slightly different story. So it's important to put it into context of, of how many lymph nodes you've removed, what do the other lymph nodes say, what's the age of the patient, the size of the tumour, the grade of the tumour, the phenotype of the tumour, all those things get taken into consideration as well because when you're talking about what to do with a macrometastasis, you know the trial that we all talk about there is... The Z11 trial? Yep. Um, and the thing about the Z11 trial is if you're going to extrapolate data from it, you have to be mindful of what their cohort was. So their cohort was all a relatively small, T1, T2 mostly, um, luminal A breast cancers all treated with a wide local excision so they all had breast radiotherapy. So um, we extrapolate from that, well, then maybe we don't need to do a clearance after macrometastasis, but actually we've only analysed that one cohort of women with all the issues that come with that trial. And so there's an Australian trial. The POSNOP trial? Yeah, uh, trying to broaden that cohort a little bit more so they're including... Um, women who have mastectomy as well, but not everyone who always have post-cancer um, removal radiotherapy to try and take that confounder out. Um, so from Z11, a lot of us were saying, okay, well, you don't have to clear an axilla after a macrometastasis. But I'm going to say it depends a lot on the situation. Let's say you've only removed one lymph node, you've only got one set of lymph node, and you've got a 12-millimetre macrometastasis with extranodal extension and a terrible-looking primary in the breast, much more likely to clear that lady's axilla or recommend post-sentinel lymph node biopsy radiotherapy um, because uh, the other trial that's important to talk about when you're answering this question is AMROS. So have you heard about the AMROS trial? I have, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. So the AMROS trial was where they looked at women who've got um, macrometastasis in their central lymph node biopsy and they randomised to auxiliary lymph node dissection or auxiliary radiotherapy or breast radiotherapy that included auxiliary fields. Um, and if 
essentially those two arms are equal in terms of disease-free survival and overall survival. Um, and interestingly, the women who had an axillary, in a surgical axillary clearance, had higher rates of lymphedema than women who had axillary radiotherapy. So um, may potentially push you to say, well, that she should have axillary radiotherapy. But at the moment, it's a bit of a discussion. Um, the other thing about making that decision is guiding further treatments. So if, if it's going to impact further treatment, then it's worthwhile doing more surgery. For example, if the oncologist says to you, well, on the information I've got at the moment, I don't know whether this woman would benefit from long-course chemotherapy or short-course chemotherapy. If I had more information about lymph nodes and that would help me make that decision, then that often helps guide you and that's the importance of the MDT. So that's for macrometastasis and I specifically answered that first because that's actually an easier answer, even though that's not a straightforward answer. Right, so in terms of micrometastases, so the, the quick, easy answer is for a micrometastasis, you can think of it as n naught disease. So you treat it like, in a way, isolated tumour cells. And the big trial that looked at that was called IBC-SG2301. Okay, mouthful. Rolls off, rolls off the tip of the tongue. <laughs> um, but what that found was that, um, so what they did was with the women who had micrometastases, they had an axillary clearance and then they analysed um, the rate of non-sentinel lymph node node positivity. So how many more lymph nodes would you find? And it was less than 10% of women would have more positive nodes. And so the assumption was really you don't need to be doing that. The yield is too low. And that usually with further adjuvant treatment, that's all that they need. And would you suggest radiotherapy for those patients if they, for example, had a poor prognosis tumour in general or...? Often, but not always, yeah. So sometimes... That's where the MDT comes in. Yeah, that's right. And it depends a lot on tumour phenotype as well. So let's say you've got a HER2-positive tumour, you know that you're going to have really effective systemic targeted treatments. You've probably got an argument to say that's not necessary. Whereas if you've got someone who's got triple negative disease and you know there's not very good systemic treatments for that, then, uh, yeah, they'd be more likely to have some other type of um, treatment, either surgery or radiotherapy. Okay, next question. If you cannot localise a sentinel lymph node at sentinel lymph node biopsy, what do you do? So I'm going to answer this with the same preamble as the other two questions that you've got to think about why are you doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy, right? So um, prognosis, staging and guide further treatment, right? So it depends on the situation. So if you've got, let's say, an 80-year-old with a small luminal A cancer who's never going to have chemotherapy, and you think the yield of having a positive central node is small, you've got an argument there to actually do nothing. If you've got a younger patient who would be a candidate for chemotherapy and it's actually really important to get that information, something, um, you know, she has a, a tumour subtype that you know has a high rate of tumour metastases like micropapillary or, you know, something that you're worried about, in that situation you should be doing a lower auxiliary sample. A lower auxiliary sample, like a level 1 Exactly. So you're just removing the lymph nodes around level one. And the lower auxiliary sample, it, it used to be standard of care before sentinel lymph node biopsies came in for early breast cancers. It, it's sort of a bit tut-tutted. You know, we all look down on it now because we've got sentinel node biopsies and isn't that fancy. Um, but actually, if you 
compare a central lymph node biopsy and a lower axillary sample, you're actually most of the time removing the same lymph nodes. So that's probably the safest answer. If you've got someone with really high risk disease or you look to do the central lymph node biopsy and the axilla feels heavily involved, and that is a reason why you could fail a central lymph node biopsy because if you've got complete blockage of all your dermal lymphatics from tumour, in that situation, I would do an axillary clearance. Another topic in the axilla is the management of the axilla post-neoadjuvant treatment, where pre-treatment there was a positive node, and post-treatment there appears to be a radiologically complete pathological response. I've come across concepts of targeted axillary dissection or going directly to an axillary clearance. What would you suggest our approach be in the exam for that sort of question? So this is a complex clinical scenario (laughs) in which to date there aren't any good randomised trials to tell you what to do. So there's a few big trials that talk about this concept when you had a clinically or radiologically positive axilla pre-treatment that responded. The biggest trial about this was Sentina. So it's S-E-N-T-I-N-A. It's a European trial, um, came out in 2015. It's a really complicated trial design. So they had four arms to this study. But the one that's relevant for this question about what to do about a positive, there was one arm exactly like this where they were positive pre-treatment and then after treatment they did a sentinel node biopsy and an auxiliary clearance and that allowed them to see how safe it was. So the problem in that was that um, there was a false negative rate of 24% in that arm, which is quite high to say that, well, actually probably at sentinel node biopsy, if you were no positive pre-treatment at sentinel node biopsy, is probably not safe. And that's where this concept of a targeted auxiliary dissection came from to try and get that false negative rate down. So um, what's your understanding of what a targeted auxiliary dissection is? So this is where you would do a sentinel node biopsy in the same way you usually would with dual localization you also would try and remove any nodes that were clipped that had been positive pre-surgery and then also on the histology you would count any positivity even isolated tumor cells as being a positive node yeah that's right and so when you remove the clipped node all that does is increase it should increase your node count because the more nodes that you get the less likely you are to have a false negative rate. Um, And the trial that really looked at that the best was the Alliance trial or the ACOZARG. I can't say ACOZARG without an American accent. It's the Z1071 trial. Um, And that looked at the more lymph nodes you get, the lower your false negative rate after neurogenic chemotherapy. Most of those women were node negative at the start of chemotherapy. But the concept remains the same. The more nodes you get, the lower your false negative rate is. So if you remove the clip node as well as doing the normal sitnobiopsy, that potentially should go down. So um, this is a relatively new concept. You know, we've really only been doing targeted cellular dissections locally for a couple of years at most, like maybe even only even a year ago we were feeling a bit cowboyish talking about it because certainly the safest approach is if you were no positive at the start of treatment, you should have auxiliary clearance. It's still quite, you know, experimental, the safety of a targeted ancillary dissection. Um, My general rules are is you have to have a good clinical and radiological response for me to do lesser surgery in the axilla. You also have to have had less than four lymph nodes involved at the beginning. 
to have a really good look at your PET scan or your CT scan initially. Your ultrasound can sometimes help count nodes for you as well, and that's to do with the sensitivity. So if you have too many lymph nodes that were involved before, your sensitivity for a TAD is much less, and I just don't think it's safe. The truth is we don't actually know, and time will tell us, but we should do what's safest. It'll be interesting to see what data comes out about that over time. My next question is about auxiliary lymph node dissection. With auxiliary lymph node dissection, is it standard to take level one and two nodes? And when would you go ahead and take level three lymph nodes? It's really hard for me not to make you answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to tell me what your understanding of that of that is? My understanding is that I couldn't find a super clear answer, but that from experience, we would routinely remove a level one and level two when we talk about auxiliary lymph node dissection for breast cancer, that you would usually then palpate uh, the intrapectoral nodes and palpate up into the level three. And that in that situation, if you felt that there clinically would potentially involve nodes that you may do further surgery. That's a perfect answer. That's an absolutely perfect answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that would be standard in any breast auxiliary clearance at the end, you know, when you've – so that the top of level two, although we talk about it being um, the superior border of pec minor, when you're actually in there, it's more like – where your two nerves kind of come together right at the vertex. So you'd always feel beyond that and above the auxiliary vein and higher to see if there's any other nodes and you'd often cherry pick them. If you're going to do a formal level three clearance, often you'd need to divide pec minor to be able to get really high enough up under pec major to be able to get to the very top there. And so you'd need to really if you did feel pathological nodes, you would need to do a formal level three clearance, but usually for breast um, level one and two standard. For other tumour types like melanoma or SCC, it's important to get higher. And and that's always been because traditionally they haven't had such good systemic treatment options. And that's sort of a bit different now for melanomas, unfortunately still not for SCC, but for melanoma now, most people have got good, um, there's good systemic options. Okay, I want to move on to some <laughs> questions about breast cancer. It's enough about axilla, I think. <laughs> okay, so my first question is, what margins do we want in Australia if you're doing surgery for DCIS and what margins for invasive cancer? So this has changed over the last few years due to a big meta-analysis that came out um, first for invasive disease, so the meta-analysis for invasive disease came out in 2015. And this isn't an Australian, it, it was actually an Australian um, a lady from Sydney who was the epidemiologist who did most of the stats analysis, but it's an American paper. Um, and then the DCIS meta-analysis came out in 2017. So that's where all the data comes from. They pull huge amounts of data from loads of different randomised control trials about local recurrence rates. So what they decided for invasive disease was actually you've only got to have no ink on tumour for invasive disease. And that basically means when the pathologist receives the specimen, they paint all the specimen and then they slice it up really finely. So that that's how they understand where the margin is so that they can see where their ink is and they compare. 
where the tumour ends to where the ink is. So if there's ink on your tumour, then that's a, that's a positive margin. And anything anything different to that is fine. So if your margin is 0.1 millimetre, it's okay. You don't need to worry. Another thing to be aware of with positive margins for invasive disease or DCIS is that you should do, we do a cylindrical excision that extends from right underneath the, the breast skin to the pectoralis muscle fascia or, you know, if you're not, if you're lateral or inferior to the fascia, you know, the retromammary fascia. So if you've got an involved posterior or anterior margin, normally we'd say there's no more tissue to take. So that doesn't require any further surgery. Um, sometimes we'll mean some radiotherapy or different types of radiotherapy, like a boost, so extra radiotherapy to the tumour bed. Um, but generally the answer to that question is no incontum, and that comes from the big meta-analysis and it was confirmed by the ASTRO guidelines in 2015. For DCIS, the same, the same group did a similar meta-analysis for DCIS and their response to that was two millimetres. So you want to aim for a two millimetre margin for DCIS. The caveat on that is if you've got DCIS related to a tumour, so often you'll have DCIS and a tumour existing in the same specimen. And so if you've got DCIS in relation to a tumour, we normally treat that like knowing on tumour as well. So now I have a question about the genetic breast cancer syndromes and screening. So in regards to screening for genetic breast cancers, I found it difficult to find clear guidelines for when to start screening and what screening to offer. Is there a good guideline that you use or, or what would you recommend that we say in the exam? This is a really good question, Amanda, and this is a bugbear of mine because actually there is no good Australian guidelines currently. So Cancer Australia used to do the guidelines, but they're quite outdated now. But the other sources of guidelines are EBIQ. EBIQ we think of more as a medical oncology resource and it's a wonderful medical oncology resource um, and it's got some really good stuff about genetic syndromes, surveillance as well, but it's not all that detailed. The other great place is um, a Peter Mac website called iPrevent. The issue with iPrevent is to try to, to get to the point where it tells you what to do for different situations. You have to enter in all these permutations that you won't just spit out these are some guidelines. So it's a little bit tricky. ASCO, ASCO developed some guidelines uh, that came out this year. So that's recent. So that's 2020, but that's their American guidelines. They're mostly relevant for us. The general advice for women who've got a genetic syndrome that increases their risk of breast cancer, and that's the high penetrance genes because there's some lower penetrance genes that sort of questionable about what you should do, like the CHECK2 mutations have a much lower incidence. But so, you know, the high penetrance genes like BRCA1 and BRCA2, we would do an MRI uh, annually and you've got to start doing that from usually when they see you. You don't often want to be doing MRIs in the 20s. Do you know what the problem is of doing an annual MRI from, for someone who starts in their 20s? No, I'm not aware. It's to do with gadolinium accumulation. So if you have over... I think it's over about 20 MRIs, the gadolinium deposits in your cerebral spinal fluid, and you can see it on, on imaging. It's not known to be of any consequence, like these people aren't experiencing neurological symptoms, but it still sounds pretty bad. And I think we've got to, yeah, be a bit confident. So if you're 20 and you start having an annual MRI, you know, you're looking at 
50 MRI scans. So MRI and don't forget a mammogram actually gives you very different information to an MR. So often I'll do an MR and a mammogram, but only in women over 40. Women who have a genetic mutation should be strongly encouraged to have prophylactic surgery at a time that suits them, as well as a discussion around pre preventative medication or chemo prophylaxis. Have you read anything about that? I had, yeah, putting them on tamoxifen for prevention, although I haven't ever seen that in clinical practice. Yeah, so in clinical practice, it's, it's really difficult to, I don't want to use the expression convince or talking to, but that's how it ends up feeling. Women don't want to take a breast cancer drug for every day of their life. They feel well, they are well. And I think I've only ever successfully talked somebody to it once. But it's a really effective prevention strategy. Do you know the figure for how much it reduces your risk? I have it in my notes, but not off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> so about 40, about 40%. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, which is quite significant. If your baseline risk is 60%, mm. you know, that's quite a big risk reduction. So it's an important thing to think about as well. The, the complicated ones are those moderate risk factors where they don't have a known genetic mutation. There's a strong family history or high breast density or something else that makes you think that they're high risk. And then in day-to-day -day practice, I make a individual decision about what type of imaging somebody should have. So usually it's a mammogram and an ultrasound, but if they've got high breast density or they're young, um, I'm adding an MRI in. That's probably why it was so hard for me to find any clear answers about guidelines because they really don't exist any. So thanks for that. My next question is about post-mastectomy radiotherapy. What would you say the indications would be for post-mastectomy radiotherapy? I had come across, you know, if they have significant nodal disease, obviously if they have a positive chest wall margin or if they have very high-risk disease, would that be what, what you would have said for that sort of question? Yeah. Um, so go back to the nodal burden for a sec because um, sort of five years ago, we indication of post-mastectomy radiotherapy, people were talking about N2, N3 disease. But then the MA20 trial came out and that concluded that actually women even with N1 disease benefit for, from post-mastectomy radiotherapy in terms of um, overall survival. Right, so not just for local regional relapse, which is how we usually think about radiotherapy, but for overall survival. So now it's sort of become standard of care. If you have any positive nodes, there's a benefit in post-mastectomy radiotherapy. All those other things you mentioned as well, you know, involved margins. You know, I had a lady, an elderly lady who needed a mastectomy for breast cancer and at mastectomy it was obviously invading the pectoralis muscle and I skeletonized, so I removed that section of pectoralis muscle. So I was on ribs. You know, breast surgeons were not um, particularly cavalier or brave and don't like to see pulsating hearts through ribs, but I had to see that. And, um, you know, I even shaved a tiny bit of intercostal muscle because it all looked involved, but even still, you know, that was an Arnold resection and there was, um, sorry, that was, um, I wasn't able to get an Arnold resection with that lady and she needed post-mastectomy radiotherapy because it was involving um, the periosteum. You know, so that's a clear indication for chest wall radiotherapy. Um, but yeah, any N, N1 disease now will benefit as well, which has big implications in terms of reconstruction because radiotherapy and reconstruction aren't, particularly with friends. That was actually my next question. 
So in general, how do you decide if somebody, we would offer somebody an immediate reconstruction post mastectomy or a delayed reconstruction? This is really institution dependent. So um, in my practice, I offer everybody for an immediate reconstruction and where the cosmetic burden of radiotherapy. And that's because I think the psychological impact of having a delay is, is quite significant. If somebody wants a reconstruction, I believe that they should have it up front um, with the understanding that radiotherapy will affect that reconstruction. Um, and this is what where the concept of reverse protocol came in, where you give someone radiotherapy prior to um, mastectomy. Um, and it tends to only be for autologous reconstruction because any time you talk about implants and radiotherapy, it's almost always a disaster. So you're going to avoid that situation as much as possible. Even if you do an implant after radiotherapy, that situation is still quite fraught as well. So an autologous reconstruction or using your own tissue-free flat or a pedicled flat where the reconstruction, where the radiotherapy a lot better. I say it's institutional because when I went to Perth for my fellowship in 2015, anybody who needed post-mastectomy radiotherapy wasn't offered or allowed um, an immediate reconstruction. And things that's interesting about that is women tend not to fight that. Like I never had a woman say, what do you mean you won't give me an immediate reconstruction? I mean, everyone's very understanding of what, of what your doctor says. Your doctor says you can't have this treatment, you don't mostly women don't push it and that actually um, it's something that I'm really passionate about that women are offered an immediate reconstruction if they want a reconstruction not everybody does but that we're really lucky and privileged in Australia that we can offer that to women and I think it's got a huge psychological impact. I have a question about oncoplastic surgery how much for the exam do we need to know about oncoplastic surgery do we need to know all the details about the different level two oncoplastic options and the different mammoplasty techniques and flaps or in general should we be able to talk about the sort of general concepts and who you might offer it to and the concepts of you know having somebody who's got dense breasts and those sorts of things i think just having a broad understanding is probably all you need to know i think the specifics about different types of mammoplasty techniques is probably beyond the scope um, to have an understanding about what a level one procedure is and what a level two procedure is and who's not suitable for either one of those things is worthwhile. A, a lot of the like crux of oncoplastic surgery is breast anatomy and breast perfusion. And so you should have obviously have a very good idea about breast anatomy and where pedicle you know, flaps come from. Um, and that's why we do certain types of mammoplasties. But... Um, I think the actual details wouldn't be, you know, all that important. Not if you're applying the, the principle that it's about being a safe general surgeon. Because you can mostly, I mean, most of the time you can remove somebody's breast cancer without doing an oncoplastic technique. You know, it's, it's, they're great techniques to have, but to be a safe general country surgeon, you don't necessarily have to have those techniques. That's definitely good to know because some of those mammoplasty approaches are quite complex. So thanks for clearing that up. My next question is about re-excisions and margins. How many re-attempts would you say you, you would make at getting clear margins with breast conserving surgery? Is there a cutoff like you'd have a second go and then you'd suggest a mastectomy? And would you routinely take additional margins when you do wide local excisions or do you not routinely do that? 
The rule that I generally abide by is that you get one go at a re-excision and if you haven't got clear margins with a re-excision, then that patient needs a mastectomy. The problem with rules is that there's always exceptions to every rule. The, the thing is usually when you go back and do a re-excision margin, it's really infrequent that you actually find tumour or DCIS in that margin and it's almost always because you probably missed where it was. It's actually really hard to, to get the exact right spot, even if you've re-looked over the imaging, re-looked over the pathology, I actually think, and it's a very cynical thing, but, you know, the vast minority of times you've actually got more tumour involved when you do re-excision margins. But generally the rule is if you haven't got clear margins with re-excision margins, that patient needs a mastectomy. And the second question about, what was the second question about? Oh, take margins. Yeah, okay. So there's a really interesting paper about this um, that showed when, when people did this, right, so after you've taken your wide local excision specimen, they routinely took, you know, super, all the margins that they could and sent them as individual specimens. And what's fascinating about this is up to 20% of those specimens had more tumour or DCIS in that we would normally otherwise leave. And, and that's the concept of why radiotherapy works, right, is that we, we're probably not removing every single plastic cell at the time and we need something to mop up those extra bits. So I don't routinely do that and that's because um, it, it has a huge impact on cosmesis and I don't think it actually impacts survival. So I do a fair bit of oncoplastic work and when you do an oncoplastic wide local excision, you generally take larger tissue volumes. That's the broad argument for oncoplastics is you're less likely to have a positive margin but not not always. Um, so no, I don't routinely do it and I don't know anybody who does routinely do it. I hadn't routinely seen it. I've seen sometimes if you sort of, especially if it's a palpable tumour or, or if you're doing the x-ray and you think, oh, it looks a bit close there, you might take that that side, but not routinely to shave all the margins. Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. And so that's an important note to make is that if you've done a specimen x-ray and you feel like there's a margin that's close, I would often take an extra bit and that's probably more often than not because yeah you really don't want to have to come back so that concludes our first guest episode i'd like to do a quick summary about some of the questions that we touched on the first was how many nodes should you remove at sentinel lymph node biopsy and the answer was between two and four the second question was, what to do when you find lymph node metastases on your sentinel lymph node biopsy? If there are isolated tumor cells, then this is n naught disease and no further surgery if the axilla is required. For micrometastases, the easy answer is that this is also n naught disease, and the trial to know for this one is the IBCSG2301 trial. For macrometastases, there's a few trials to know about. The first two are the Z11 and the POSNOC trial, which are trying to determine whether or not these patients who may have macrometastases in one or two sentinel lymph nodes really do need further auxiliary surgery or auxiliary radiotherapy. The answer to this isn't really clear yet and really depends on the whole picture and a discussion at the MDT. The AMROS trial is the trial that looked at giving radiotherapy versus an auxiliary lymph node dissection in patients with one to two positive sentinel lymph nodes, and this showed equivalent outcomes. 
The next question was what to do if you can't localize the sentinel lymph node intraoperatively. And the answer was that it depends on the situation. For example, a patient with an early luminal A tumor who's elderly and may never be a candidate for chemotherapy, you may not proceed to do any further auxiliary surgery. If you're very concerned, then you could do a limited auxiliary sample, which is clearance of the level one auxiliary nodes. And if you were very concerned that there were clinically involved nodes, then you would proceed with an auxiliary dissection. In regards to the management of the axilla post-neoadjuvant treatment, where pre-treatment there was a positive node and post-treatment there appears to be a radiological complete response, what should you do with the axilla? The safe answer for the exam is that these patients should have an axillary lymph node dissection, but we should be aware of the developing use of targeted axillary surgery or targeted axillary dissection in patients who have had low-volume axillary disease pre-treatment. For an axillary lymph node dissection, it's standard to say you would remove level 1 and level 2 lymph nodes with palpation of the level 3 nodes and cherry-picking of these nodes if they felt clinically involved. For margins in Australia, for invasive cancer, we want no ink on margin, and for DCIS, the margin should be 2 millimetres. When talking about genetic breast cancers and guidelines for when you should start surveillance for these patients, there aren't good Australian guidelines that exist. Jocelyn suggested the EVIQ guidelines, a PETAMAC website called iPrevent, or the American Society of Clinical Oncology released guidelines for the management of hereditary breast cancer in 2020, which is a guide that could be used in Australia. In addition, these patients should be encouraged to have prophylactic surgery and a discussion about chemoprophylaxis with tamoxifen, which will reduce their risk of breast cancer by 40%. Indications for post-mastectomy radiotherapy are the presence of any nodal disease, positive chest wall margin, or other features of the tumour that make it high risk. Regarding what we need to know about oncoplastic surgery, it's worth understanding who you would offer and not offer level 1 and level 2 oncoplastic surgery to, as well as having an understanding of the principles of the surgery and the anatomy that the pedicles are based on. And the last thing we talked about was achieving clear margins with breast-conserving surgery. Jocelyn's says that in general you should have one reattempt at achieving clear margins and routine additional margins are not required unless there is an intraoperative concern post-resection that a margin is close. Thanks so much for listening in. Really enjoyed your company. It's been great having the opportunity to ask the questions and clear up some of the things we weren't exactly clear on in the content aspects of the podcast. And I hope that you have learned as much as I have about these topics. Jocelyn obviously is very passionate about caring for these patients and has a lot of knowledge about all of this. So I'm really grateful for her time and hope that she can come on again, maybe even as a quiz master to see how much I really have learned. Until next time. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!